0: These are the true stories of farmers,
1: conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming
0: and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. We're about to uh, interview uh, Craig Cox. Today is uh, September 4th. Uh, really, what we want to start out with today, Craig, is uh, some personal background about you, how you got involved with conservation, It's been involved in the many uh, efforts over the years that have been very important in moving forward, conservation policy, really policy is so much of what our emphasis of these interviews uh, is, and uh, how you personally got involved with it, and your sort of, uh, what led you to become involved even from the time you were a kid in uh-huh. conservation. So.
1: Go ahead. Well, I grew up in St. Paul, you know, in the old part of St. Paul over by McAllister College. And, um, you know, the outdoors just seemed to be hardwired in mm-hmm. my brain and everywhere else. I don't know why it, that was not anyone else in my family was like that. But mm-hmm. all I wanted to be was outside. I didn't really care what I was doing. I just wanted to be outside. And um, and then it, it was, and then probably the biggest thing that sent me on this path was my dad bought a cow pasture on Carnelian Lake, you know, out by Stillwater. And that really became my haven. You know, we, for the first five years, we just sat on a blanket, um, and then we went through a series of shacks and cabins until, I was spending much of my summers at that cabin, and at that time the area was not developed at all. Right. So I had free range, you know, through prairies and savannas and oak forests. So for a kid of, you know, seven years old, that was, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, that really kind of solidified my um, interest in nature. Um, and my love of the outdoors, and it, it followed from there. I found my grandpa's tackle box in the basement. I found his old bamboo fly rod behind the furnace. So mm-hmm. then I started fishing, and after that I started hunting. I was always into hiking, and um, it, it, just, it just went from there
0: and i imagine you made a connection with the st croix river absolutely and the mississippi too even as a kid in st paul the, the mississippi river looms so large
1: yeah we my friend mark methman and i um, got into snakes when we were kids and we would ride our bikes down to the mississippi river mm-hmm. the bluffs and we'd hunt for snakes and catch them and bring them back and keep them in aquaria in our <laughs> in our bedrooms which was not a big hit in my family but they <laughs> tolerated it for a while. So yeah, it was it was wonderful with to have all that within bike riding. It was it was great. So then in terms of career wise, wise too. Yeah, I went to um I went to McAllister College uh, because of their uh, they had a great uh, e- ecological program at that time, natural resource and ecology. Mm-hmm. They had a place out in Rosemont, you know, a station. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, almost the moment I arrived at McAllister, they went into some significant um, financial problems mm-hmm. and they canceled that whole ecology program so i knocked around at mcallister for a while got a nice liberal arts vacation did not graduate from there and then quit after uh as i was starting my junior year because i knew i was just never going to finish there um and then i started volunteering i you know i volunteered for an environmental lawyer that was working on the reserve mining case I volunteered for uh, another, do you remember the big push to mine peat? In Northern Minnesota, well, there was a, um, a project, a big science project run through the University of Minnesota to evaluate. And I volunteered for that. And then decided I needed to get serious go back to school that was about I was out of school for about four or five years. Oh, you were. Went back to the univer. went to the University of Minnesota uh, in the wildlife ecology and management program. Uh, graduated from there, went to work for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Um, ended up in the state park system in this unbelievably wonderful job. Uh, we got it in our heads in the state park system at that point that in what was then the 50 state parks, we wanted to represent all of pre-settlement Minnesota, one way or the other. And um, so I was in charge of, of trying to manage resources on parks in the metro area and then central Minnesota. So it was prairie restoration, savanna restoration, big pines wetlands it was for somebody like me it was delightful it was great so i did that for 10 years and towards the end of that i it became clearer and clearer to me that uh, you know focusing all our effort on these these relatively small postcards of public land was really gonna be pretty limiting in terms of if you looked around at what was happening on agricultural land, what was happening to streams and rivers. There were, you know, if, we didn't really, if we didn't really manage or if we didn't take on farming and the way the impact that farming was having on the environment and natural resources and habitat, that everything we did on state land was really going to be overwhelmed with what was happening in, um, on the private landscape. And that was reinforced for me. Um, you know, I'm a crazed trout fisherman and one of my parks had this beautiful, tiny little trout stream that was actually the southern border of the park between park and private land. And the private land was pretty steep. It was cleared. There was a terrible rainstorm and overnight that trout stream literally disappeared. The whole channel was full of sediment. So th- that was to me kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and then in timing-wise, was, I was coming to this realization right as the 1985 Farm Bill was finishing up. and. And that farm bill was was remarkable for the conservation community. It's 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 when I think the conservation community woke up to the potential of farm bills, you know, especially with the conservation reserve program, the conservation compliance provisions. Um, you know, my boss, my current boss, Ken Cook, you know, likes to tell the story that in the 85 Farm Bill, every, everyone that was lobbying for sustainable agriculture or natural resources could fit in one cab, yep, that's you know, true. up to the hill. And, um, and then, you know, that was just such a watershed moment. So I went, uh, I decided I was gonna work on farm policy so i I managed to get a fellowship to go back to the University of Minnesota, finish graduate work in agricultural natural resource economics. A typical story i um, I was hired for what was supposed to be an eighteen month gig at the National Academy of Sciences board on Agriculture. Um, I arrived there just as... Alternative agriculture was, you know, the finishing touches were being put on that mm-hmm. book, and was part of the team that released that.
0: That was the Chuck
1: ben the Bender report, and you yeah. can you remember that was like a thunderclap oh, when yes. it when it hit, and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and that you know I, it was just fortunate, right? I happened to land. At that board on agriculture that was vitally interested in sustainable agriculture, you know, I ended up running the soil and water quality agenda for agriculture project, which was a kind of a follow-up to alternative agriculture. So that's when I, um, you know, that's when I was first really introduced to the sustainable agriculture movement. Although. Um, it was still a little—I uh, can't think of the right word—but it, it it hadn't coalesced the way it has now. So I remember these crazy debates over what does sustainable mean, right. and, you know, big fight over language in the farm bill defining sustainable, um, the the vehement reaction or backlash to release of alternative agriculture. Um, So that's where it started for me. You know, I came in, I came in clearly from a natural resource environmental perspective in, you know, into the sustainable agriculture world. And, And the 2014 Farm Bill was my fifth Farm Bill that I've worked on from various um, positions, and in ninety, the nineteen ninety bill, I was at the National Academy of Sciences. Ninety six bill, I was on the Senate Agriculture Committee staff for that Farm Bill. Two thousand two and two thousand eight, I was running the Soil and Water Conservation Society, and was engaged in the Farm Bill from that. Um, organization. And then this last one, I was at the environmental working group. Right. So it's farm bills and farm policy and its implications for the environment and conservation have pretty much define my working life.
0: Very good. I uh, recall, um, I recall, I think the first time we met, you know, for me too, it was a uh, the 85 Farm Bill and the preparation to it. What I remember kicking off like the Land Stewardship Project in 1982 was the National Ag Land Study right. that came out and, and had, th- had findings like the fact that there were two bushels of corn, two bushels of soil lost for every bushel right. of corn grown in Iowa. And that just jumped out at people. And that kind of in my mind was one of the things that set the stage for the 85 farm field.
1: it was remarkable it was it and then the you know the national resources inventory yeah. you know landed in 1982 that was that really woke people up to the extent of soil erosion mm-hmm. that soil erosion was so concentrated on highly erodible land um, the, um, Senator Armstrong introduced what was going to become Sodbuster, I think, in 81 or 82. But it was, I think, for all of us, I was still only tangentially involved at that point. But um, I mean, if, if you look at what we've accomplished in farm bills after eighty five. It's just striking what was accomplished in eighty five. I mean it was I don't think we've accomplished anything of that magnitude no. in sustainable agriculture and natural resources um
0: since then. Great.
1: I mean there's been some really high points since great. then, but that was
0: Right. You know. And a lot of it, I was looking back over Ferd Hefner's memo that he provided to us about his view of the progress over the years. I don't know if you had a chance. To I really did. It. I looked at it's it. It's really quite amazing. It is. And uh, a lot of what starts taking hold increasingly is the mandatory funding issue, yes. getting funding into these. Uh, you could maybe talk a little bit about that. I was going to say, the first real memory I have of really connecting to you was I think I was actually lobbying you when yes. you were on the Senate staff. Yep,
1: absolutely, I remember.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your positions uh, in the Senate and what you did there, uh, and then also when you were with, when you were president of the Soil and Water Society, what what are those organizations or, you know, a little bit bigger picture okay. on
1: that. Well, I was hired um, out of the National Academy to be the senator leahy who was chair of the senate ag committee at that point um, to be the conservation leader for the upcoming what was supposed to be the 95 farm bill turned into the 96 farm bill and um jim QB was my direct boss chuck Schneider, you might remember him was chief of staff um, it was a great we had a great team.
0: When did Kathleen Merrigan
1: come she, uh, she was going out the door as I was coming in okay. the door.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, I her work
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we, we started out um, immediately trying to think of how do we make a closer linkage between the commodity title and the conservation title? Mm-hmm. Because it was clear to all of us that the way that commodity title is structured, you know, had huge implications and created really significant barriers to uh, the kind of farming systems that we were, you you know, we thought were more sustainable, more environmental friendly, maybe better for farm families themselves. Um, so, So that was a bit of a, that was a departure from um or or maybe more trying to think about you know we made that linkage with conservation compliance as as one way to try to blunt some of the incentives right. the, the negative incentives created by farm subsidies right. so we started talking about what's the next step you know where do we go from compliance um, and we conceive this notion of the conservation farm option, which really came out of our shop. FERD became a huge ally in trying to move the conservation farm option along, but it was it was the first sort of notion of of making conservation an option instead of the traditional farm subsidies. So for farmers that were more interested in uh, conservation and diversified farming operations where, you know, corn and bean subsidies didn't really work as well for them or if they were grazing, then the way we pitched this was, you know, you could you can be in the deficiency program or you could be in this conservation farm option where your farm would be supported but really, based on what you were doing for conservation in the environment and the landscape, um, it was kind of the first little inkling of what was to come, which I'll which I'll get back to. But uh, two, a couple things happened. One is uh, the the Republicans took over the Senate. <clears throat> in 1994 remember as part of the Gingrich revolution oh yes so Senator Leahy became <coughs> ranking member and Senator Luger became chair of the Senate committee so of course that has had a huge impact on you know our influence oh
0: yes
1: um, but Senator Luger actually was far more simpatico with what Senator Leahy's staff was trying to do than then the rest of the committee, really. Yeah, yeah I remember that. <laughs> and, um, and then the second thing that happened is there was a huge backlash against conservation compliance. So we spent a lot of time defending compliance, especially the swamp buster provisions, where there was a lot of pressure coming out of North and South Dakota.
0: Which to- was basically penalizing, talk a little bit about what sodbuster and Swamp actually were intended to do. Right. That would have been
1: a so one of the, so the two things, there was a lot of academic research. The Economic Research Service had done a lot of work that really documented that um, the way we were subsidizing agriculture was creating incentives to plow out marginal land that was highly erosive and also to drain wetlands and expand into wetland areas the conservation compliance provisions then really focused on those two things so it was a quid pro quo between farmers and taxpayers if you if you wanted to remain eligible for farm subsidies you had to implement some basic soil conservation practices on your most highly vulnerable land which was then From that point forward, was called highly erodible land, which was defined by uh, the NRCS. It's about 140 million acres of cropland that was to have conservation practices on it. There were five; you had five years to get your plan done, and five years to get it fully implemented. So the whole program was supposed to be in place by 1995.
0: And in theory, then, if you didn't comply, you would lose
1: eligibility for those benefits. Right. That's right. And similarly, what what is officially called the wetland conservation provisions, commonly known as swamp buster, is if you, it, it's a it's a little complicated, but if you if you uh, improve the drainage, to make production of a subsidized commodity possible on a wetland, you would lose eligibility for those same benefits. Um, and that's what the big you know, most farmers and landowners, it seemed like the highly erodible land provisions were easier for them to swallow. I think partly because um Soil conservation was a more accepted, uh, was more accepted in the mind of landowners, I think. Yeah, it had a history, it had a history. It was highly visible. Uh, the, The swamp buster issue was much more politically fraught because it really, it really affected producers in the prairie pothole region, which, of course, was from our point of view, great, because that's one of the most important, maybe the most important remaining wetland complex in North America, Mm -hmm. but it was a political firestorm coming out of the North and South Dakota, pieces of Nebraska, Um, and that became a huge fight to, um, to try to maintain the swamp buster provisions and And we we succeeded we you know there were some things we introduced that people would consider weakening the statute. We thought it was a way to um, soften the blow a bit, make it more manageable. We added you know wetland mitigation provisions and minimal effect, and some of these other um, notions that we thought would. Would give landowners a little more options to work around it right. while still maintaining its, mm-hmm. its core. Mm-hmm. Um, we should come back to compliance because, you know, I was in, um, I, 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 after the 96 Farm Bill, right, I was down in the, I, I went to USDA to be a special assistant to. Chief Paul Johnson, you know, the Iowa Iowa farmer and and legislator. So I saw firsthand what compliance was accomplishing. Mm -hmm. And when it was taken seriously, it was really transforming the landscape in ways that I don't think any policy intervention has since that time. You know, then unfortunately, you know, since that time, the, it's just not been implemented in any any comparable serious way. So the gains have eroded. No pun intended. Right. Um, but you know we can come back to that when we talk about the 2014 Farm Bill. So that was the second thing. You know, this how can we link the commodity title more closely to Conservation, how do we defend conservation compliance? And then the third big thing was um, creating Equip, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which you know I have a very parochial attachment to Equip because I wrote most of that statute mm-hmm. with Dave Stawick on Luger staff. Um, and we we eliminated four previous conservation programs, the Agricultural Conservation Program, Colorado Salinity Program. Um, oh, now I'm, I'm gonna forget. There was a Great Plains Program. Anyway, the, the funding for those programs had been just going downhill. Mm-hmm. There'd been a lot of controversy about the Agricultural Conservation Program, was whether it was actually a conservation program or a, another form of farm support. Mm-hmm. So our concept was to eliminate those programs, consolidate all of their functions into a new program, which we call the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And then most importantly, to actually fund that program out of the Commodity Credit Corporation, you know, this really odd bank mm-hmm. that the Department of Agriculture has access to. The same funding stream that the farm subsidies are funded out of, right. So for us that and that turned into this huge brawl. Mm. Um, it, was a, it was a huge brawl to eliminate those programs um, and start this new program. But it was amazing how ferociously a lot of the agriculture community and you know FSA itself resisted. Um, making conservation a function of the Commodity Credit Corporation. But we won that eventually, you know, by the end of the Farm Bill. Um, And, you know, that's been a huge, that was a huge sea change, which really made it possible to ramp up funding for conservation programs the way, you know, the way memo documents and you know you just see this huge jump in funding flowing to the conservation title after the 96 farm bill and right. you know my feeling is if we hadn't at the time that seemed like kind of a trivial thing mm-hmm. but to us it was absolutely a critical to win that battle because mm-hmm. we it was clear to us that that was the only way we were really going to build funding for the conservation title, and it was the only way at that time we thought we could reform the commodity title and use savings to build up other functions, especially conservation. Um, So if we had them in the same funding, you know how crazy this gets in the congressional structure, but if we had conservation in the same funding pool as commodities, it would be easier to do that subsidy shift.
0: Right, and there was a, there again. There was a good connection to the uh, what became NSAC and Ford Heffner. Yes, right? played a role in that.
1: Yes, indeed. It was a real um, it was a real challenge to get equipped through and and in the process of the coalition that got equipped through you saw the beginnings of the conflicts that were going to dominate people's feelings about equip going forward because one of the stronger lobbying groups that helped get equip over its hurdle was you know what we called the barnyard coalition mm-hmm. right the pork producers cattlemen the folks that that felt they didn't have, you know, much, they didn't really have a dog in the commodity program fight. through
0: all planting. Right.
1: And there was, there was pressure growing about the water quality and, and pollution issues around what came to be called CAFOs. Mm-hmm. So they saw, you know, this as an opportunity to get some support for those folks to start meeting the environmental pressure that was coming to their industry. So that, you know, that was not something that FERD and NSAC wanted to see no. happen. So the-
0: Yeah, and the concern was because they thought, well, we really don't need to have that, more of that money going to enable, uh, you could say, uh, expansion of CAFOs expansion are right. CAFOS, yeah, I so, that
1: very well. yeah, so what we did, the, sort of the, the compromise, was to um, to limit the cost share. In, in fact, to prohibit cost share for CAFO like practices, the mm-hmm. manure storage and so on and so forth, to um, animal operations that were larger than 1,000 animal units, which was at that time, the threshold above that you were subject to the Clean Water Act, Mm -hmm. below that you were not. Mm -hmm. And we also capped the amount of um, total cost share you could receive in a contract Mm -hmm. in a way that we didn't think. We thought the combination would would blunt, if not uh, eliminate any possibility that equip funds would end up being used to support the expansion of, Mm -hmm. you know, the concentrated animal feeding model of livestock. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, all of those things were blown up in succeeding farm Yeah. So that issue has continued to be a real sore spot.
0: Right, and I know Mm -hmm. too that in the other thing, trying to get some of those funds going to like more organic producers and things like that has been a part of the Ongoing. Right. These programs, definitely, one thing that's so clear is they aren't just past and static. They're just evolving and changing and need to be protected and all of this over and over and over.
1: Yeah, and what I think we really learned is how critical the rulemaking and, and the policy, you know, the internal agency policy about how are these funds prioritized, how are they distributed, how are priorities set, That that I mean, it was a real learning curve for me to be part of the be in the agency when all these rules were actually written and to witness firsthand the um, you know it was just as it was just as much sausage making as getting the bill passed in the first
0: place. And so. I was just going to say too, the other thing that happened around 96 was the allowing the uh, state technical committees to right. have representation uh, from non some that's nonprofit right. groups and things to try to ensure not only the rulemaking, but how it looked in the landscape. And I know you were part of that. too.
1: Yeah, and that started out pretty slowly. I, I, you know, I think it's been, I think that's been one really good development over time is, uh, you know, there's, the technical committees really are pretty unique. They, they've evolved way beyond technical committees. You know, now they're really policy-making committees. Mm-hmm. And, and NGOs and other folks, you know, if they can engage, um, can have a significant influence mm-hmm. on what's happening in their states. That's been a long time coming. And in most, you know, it depends on how strong that NGO community is. And some states, you know, there just aren't very many local groups. So there's, you know, it's still kind of the traditional community that calls the shots on what's happening to those programs.
0: But, when I worked at McKnight, that's one of the things we tried to do in the Midwest, anyway, in the Mississippi states, fund yeah. some groups so they could enable some right. representation in those states.
1: Right, programs. and we're. Now I'm really jumping ahead. But, yeah, w- but one bad. thing we've, uh, on that front, one of, the, one of the issues that we confronted in the State Technical Committee was that there was really an imbalance of information um, that the NGO community, and in fact, a, a lot of other people, uh, there, was, there wasn't really a common basic set of facts about what were these programs subsidizing, which practices, where. And it was a, has been a barrier to, you know, to really enabling people, empowering people to have a serious conversation about are we spending our money on the right things in the right places, supporting the right farming systems. So at EWG, we're big into data So we're about to launch later this year, a conservation database that will document, you know, in every county, what conservation practices have been funded by the big four programs, Uh, EQUIP, Conservation Stewardship Program, Wildlife Habitat Incentives Program, and the Conservation Reserve Program. So it'll be a first ever look inside the black box of those programs, and a big reason why we pushed this was to really empower those groups that are engaging at the State Technical Committee with, you know, with the first ever really detailed information they can bring to the table. Great. And sort of be on a level the playing field a bit for the NGOs and the agency folks.
0: Well, you know, I, this is really good, and I think we did jump ahead, but I would like to uh, then say take us back to maybe at least 2000 or 96 uh, to, uh, for a couple of reasons, to have you talk about the soil and water uh, conservation society that you worked with, and also maybe to talk about the next steps on policy that you, Right. so you can kind of pick it up from there if you're
1: sure. My last job in USDA, I would, uh, Tom Hebert, who was the Deputy Undersecretary for Natural Resources and the Environment, left the agency. And I was asked to fill in in that job for, well, until they found a, a political appointee to, you know, to fill it permanently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, um, that was the job that drove me out of D.C. <laughs> Because, you know, I was just, I was really tired of the politics. I was tired of hand-holding congressional offices. And I actually felt like I was getting dumber, Mm. you know, that I was spending all my time on politics, both internal agency politics and external Mm. dealing with congressional offices, that I wasn't really learning anything anymore about the science and the of sustainable agriculture. So I um, the job at the Soil and Water Conservation Society, which is a, a professional, it's, it's kind of a combination of a scientific society and a professional organization, uh, headquartered in Ankeny, Iowa, um, had chapters throughout the United States and Canada. Um, it, actually has a really storied history. It was, it goes all the way back to Q. Hammond Bennett mm-hmm. and the Dust Bowl days, and his conception of the movement that he was creating, which, you know, I mean, that, it's the most amazing story if you ever spend the time to to, to see how this movement, the soil conservation movement, was born and institutionalized in like the snap of our fingers. Mm-hmm. But his conception was you know, the conservation districts were going to be the leaders, the sort of the, the political community leadership for soil conservation. In their vision, they were going to have taxing authority, they were going to have regulatory authority, they were really going to be quite the powerful local unit. Then what was then the Soil Conservation uh, Service was going to be the scientific and technical support Mm -hmm. for the districts, and then they conceived of this. um, They thought they were giving birth to this whole new profession of professional conservationists that that they thought were you know didn't exist, Mm -hmm. and they thought there was they needed a professional home for this new professional class of people so they it was actually at that time the soil conservation society of america was born and then i can't remember the dates but anyway then over time as water resources became critically important the organization changed its name and to some extent its focus to the soil and water conservation society but that was it was really an interesting you know as part of that insane, amazing innovation that took place during the Dust Bowl and the you know and the New deal right so the the organization got started and then was sort of pushed to the side by the second World War mm-hmm. and then you know the same people that wanted to get it moving prior to the war got it moving after the war and right. so I took over that. Organization. What year was that? Uh, 1998. Okay. August 1st. Um, and and I um, we we decided we were going to get more uh, active in policy advocacy, um, which was a pretty significant departure for the organization. So we managed to raise money, um, some from the McKnight Foundation, mm-hmm. to, um, to engage in the 2002 Farm Bill um, debate. And we, we did that by holding a series of roundtables around the country that brought together farmers and conservationists and, uh, you know, other folks we called it finding common ground, and we would have a two and a half day discussion. Uh, and and we, meaning we, the Soil and Water Conservation Society, extracted from those conservation uh, discussions where we thought the common ground was that was relevant to policy proposals for the upcoming Farm Bill. Mm -hmm. So that was our contribution. As we wrote the report, we disseminated it, ended up testifying several times on the Hill during the the 2002 Farm Bill debate. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were very engaged in that 2002 Farm Bill, which is, um, which was also an interesting, I don't know if I'd call it a watershed moment, but it it was both um, it was both a, a good win and a big disappointment simultaneously. On mm. um, the big win is it was the bill that you know quadrupled, if not more, funding for conservation programs. So it you know, equip went from 200 million to over a billion. So it was this stunning increase, historic increase in funding for conservation programs, which was wonderful, right? That was a huge step forward. Um, the big disappointment was, and this you know goes back to the sustainable agriculture community again, was the notion, it, it kind of harkened back to the conservation farm option, is, is how do we can we try this again? <laughs> Cuz the conservation farm option was was really never implemented. So is there something else we could do this time, you know, in that same vein to sort of make conservation put conservation on the same footing as commodity program. Mm-hmm. And you probably remember that one thing that 96 farm bill did was allegedly to to end farm subsidies, mm-hmm. traditional farm subsidies. There were these payments at the time called market transition payments that were just direct cash payments mm-hmm. based on what kind of subsidies you had gotten previously. They were supposed to go down year by year until they were gone in 2002. And then you know the rhetoric was that farmers would then be farming for the market. Well, they didn't go away. They became the direct payments program, that even then was, you know, was was being criticized, because you know why are these payments being made, whether it's a good year or a bad year, based on what you used to plant, not what you're planting now. It just seemed it didn't make sense to a lot of people, including us, of course. Right. So the, the notion was, what could we do to, to turn those direct payments into green payments? Right? right. And that was where the conservation security program
0: so
1: concept.
0: The conservation stewardship program. Yeah, eventually,
1: but so the big idea and I don't know if Ferd would dispute this or not, but the you know, the big idea was to to turn direct payments into the conservation security program. And you know we failed. And I think I think for farmers and for agriculture it was a terrible missed opportunity because we Just think, if we would have done that, where we would be today in terms of the legitimacy of farm subsidies and support for farmers. And it's just, it was a huge disappointment to me that the conservation security program ended up a small program in the conservation
0: title. So there's the tragedy. I mean, we did get the program out of it. Instead of it being fundamentally changing, the commodity programs that's right. It became an off to the site so, yeah. program that of relatively few people were able to that's right. really engage in those who were probably right. largely already kind of diversified and yeah. sort of a program to reward people that were doing the right thing. Right. That's how I remember Yep.
1: and it unfortunately set up the conflict between the sustainable agriculture community and and more of the conservation environmental community that's that's still a sore spot Mm -hmm. you know with um, with now the conservation stewardship program this the you know the conflict is over how much are we rewarding farmers for what they're already doing versus how much are we rewarding farmers for doing more than what they're already
2: doing right right
1: the notion of rewarding farmers for what they were already doing was the critical component of transforming the commodity mm-hmm. programs, right? Because mm-hmm. that was critically important right. and, high, and completely legitimate if we were transforming direct payments into right. the conservation security program. Right. But unfortunately, when it fell into the, you know, the conservation title, now it's like, well. Conservation title is supposed to be all about you know dealing with these significant natural resource and environmental problems, and how are we really making progress if we're spending money just on what's already out on the landscape and that sort of tension has um, has has been a sore spot in you know, uh, around the Conservation Stewardship Program and its relationship to other environmental organizations, you know.
0: Great. And I can I can say, I think when I'll talk with, I believe I'm right about with the Land Stewardship Project Group, for example, they're quite proud of that nonetheless, because at least for their kind of people, their kind of right. members are finally getting some benefit from programs right. that pre- previously had offered them virtually nothing. That's right. But. but um, I'd also like you to talk a little bit about, I'd like to get on the record, that it wasn't by accident that that didn't take hold fundamentally. There were forces working to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, I'd like you to talk about a little bit about the struggle and who was it? Why were they opposed and who was opposed to it?
1: Well, it's this has been the sad tale of farm bills from the get-go and it's actually I think gotten worse over time. Is there's a lot of money in the commodity title, and the money flows to a relatively few people, right? I mean, the the, the crops that are subsidized are, are make up about 30% of total sales of agricultural products in the United States. So it's, you know, it's the big corn, beans, wheat, cotton, rice you know it's the big five Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's just the traditional concept of politics is if you have a relatively concentrated group of people who are benefiting tremendously from a certain you know flow of money they have every reason in the world (laughs) to hire a bunch of lobbyists and spend a whole bunch of money making sure that that flow of benefits stays, whereas if there's a a bunch of more diffuse people who aren't benefiting, or, you know, I mean, it's just right, right? I mean, you have this very vested interest mm-hmm. that's been that's gotten themselves locked in. And, you know, if you look at the membership of the ag committees, especially the house ag committees, you know, there's as my boss Jim QB used to say, he says no one gets on the ag committee to polish their environmental street cred. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the districts that are represented, it's the districts where the subsidies are flowing to. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhat less so in the Senate because, right, you, your district is a state. But still, right. the th- what's happened is the, the both the Senate and the House ag committees you know, ha- have become the, the guardians of the status quo. And, um, and they've, you know, they've become very powerful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Farm Bureau and the corn growers and the soybean growers and the wheat growers and the, you know, they're just really locked in right. in that structure. So it's very hard. It's very hard to break into that Mm -hmm. from if you're an NGO Uh, and you know they like direct payments Mm -hmm. a lot and they didn't want to give them up and it was and the other I mean we're kind of jumping ahead but but this is Sort of the continuing fundamental problem is the the farm bill is in Congress is sort of considered the ag committee's turf, and and the ag committees make sure that's the perception in Congress, and um, and and they're not very interested in doing anything interesting <laughs> unless it's somehow enriching the flow of dollars to. The, mostly the same folks that are benefiting from the current subsidy structure. It's, and it's really difficult to get people that are not on the Ag Committee, that you know, whose interests would be different than that, whose interests would be in more fundamental reform, whose interests would be using the Conservation Security Program to transform farm subsidies but um, it's just hard yeah. to get them motivated and to get them to, to, to really, you know, you got to pick your battles when you're a senator or a yeah. congressman or woman. And, and it's not always very clear why they, somebody would invest all this time and political chips to reform the farm bill and right. you know that's been our problem whether you're an environmentalist or a sustainable agriculture person or healthy food person or farmers markets or you know any of the all of the other you know really wonderful things one could do and should be happening in the farm bill that's been our fundamental that's been the fundamental problem
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. and um, it still is. And this last Farm Bill, 2014, was just, you know, just a horrendous example of that.
0: Right, right. And even, I don't want to talk about this much, but the other thing, my, my days when I worked with land stewardship, which came out of, in part, the, the National Farmers Union, the decline in the post-World War II years of the general farm organization. Yes. And the commodification of yes. agriculture policy. And so in the old days, you know, you had a farmer that was growing several different yes. commodities and had animals and things like that. And they belonged to an organization, a general farm. But nowadays you're a corn grower or you're a bean grower. Yep.
1: It's terrible. Yeah. Interesting. Just an anecdote. When, when I was on the Senate agriculture staff, we had a visit from the Australian, the essentially the Australian parallel to the Farm Bureau. Who spent some time with me and us on the committee. It was fascinating, and and one of the things they, the executive director, whose name I can't remember, said was he thought, he thought it, the worst thing that U.S. agriculture had done was to form these commodity-specific organizations, in that it was taking U.S. agriculture's eye off you know, what was really most important for U.S. agriculture. And and he compared that to Australia where there weren't comparable. Mm -hmm. And I was I was always really struck by that. And if you I think if you look at the constraints that that commodity by commodity by commodity by commodity structure and political structure has created in, in U.S. agriculture, it is really unfortunate. And it's, you know, it's reinforced by the checkoffs and the marketing right. programs. And it's just, it's not good. Right. I don't think it's good for the long-term interests of farmers either, frankly. No, no I
0: don't either. It's one of the, the areas that maybe sustainable agriculture looking forward can help deal with because it is less commodity focused overall. Uh, I would
1: say. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think you see some cracks in that edifice. Um, but they're still pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they're going to open, maybe open dramatically in the coming years as, as agriculture really faces some really fundamental challenges um, that I don't think are going to be solved in the within this same
0: right, right. structure
1: that we've built.
0: Right. Well, we can get in a little bit about, I wanna, when we conclude eventually here, I wanna uh, talk a little bit about what we really need going forward. Uh, but I did wanna take us a little bit farther in your own career than say we move into the, when you, when you left, the uh, Soil and Water Conservation Society right. the EWG, right, the Environmental Working Group. Right,
1: I did that in 2008. Um, the so the the reason I did that was because it was clear to me we weren't winning, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I had succeeded in in moving the Soil and Water Conservation Society farther into a role as, a, as an advocate. Mm-hmm. But the intensity of the advocacy that I thought we needed, it was just not appropriate for the Soil and Water Conservation Society. Right. And, um, <laughs> just by happenstance, you know, I'd known Ken Cook forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I met him when I first moved to DC. He was actually, he and Maureen Hinkle, do you remember with Audubon? They were incredibly helpful to me as a newbie in the DC world and and really helped me get on my feet. Um, And EWG didn't exist at that time. Um, So, When I was in DC, I'd often check in with Ken and see what was going on. So we had dinner and um, more than a few glasses of wine (laughs) and hatched this notion of starting a Midwest office of the Environmental Working Group that would be the focus of sort of reinvigorating EWG's work in the agricultural arena. Which you know, back in '93, when the organization was founded was really a, a big part of the core of EWG's work with the farm subsidy database, and, right. you know all of that work. Then um, EWG had really evolved this its, uh, its focus on um, exposure of humans, especially children and infants, to toxic substances in right. the environment. And that work just exploded, and it's it's still exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ken wanted to revitalize, you know, just that took so much attention and time that the egg work had kind of slipped, and he didn't want he wanted to revive the egg work. So we decided to um, talk to some funders, and, and including Gretchen mm-hmm. at McKnight. To test the waters of whether there would be any interest in supporting this, um, you know, this new Midwest EWG office, and lo and behold, there was. So I made the jump to EWG to start that office and kind of rebuild the agriculture work uh, with the with the notion that we would be a more strident. Um, Advocate you know in this agric- in the farm bill space, mostly uh, for reform, mm-hmm. and you know ewG is not held in high regard by some components of the ag community, largely because of the farm subsidy database and you know sort of revealing how much money people were getting through various farm subsidies. Right. Um, and EWG is a little more in your face mm-hmm. when it comes to advocacy, uh, which it's probably we've probably ramped that up mm-hmm. in the last few years. Uh, but you know, we still are very science-based and very data-based, and you know that's we try to use research and data. And now increasingly remote sensing satellite imagery to to sort of um what we would call change the conversation you know we don't have we don't have boots on the ground we're not doing on the ground projects you know we do a lot of lobbying in dc but we don't Mm -hmm. you know we're not a grassroots organization the way a lot of our partners are so we're mostly trying to affect the uh, how people think about issues, and and how they're thinking about what the appropriate solutions would be. So that's mostly what we do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um,
0: I'd say in that role now, it's appeared to me has like as my role is uh, in the work the uh, funding organization at McKnight. It seems like that the National Sustainable Ag Coalition and, and Environmental Working Group are very much
1: allies yeah it's really been great and it's you know we still have our little friction points Mm -hmm. you know conservation stewardship program continues to be one but that's that's really pretty minor compared to our areas of agreement Mm -hmm. because we're a little we're a little odd as an environmental group um we think food it's really important we think the healthy food, nutrition components of the farm bill are you know, often as high a priority for us as the conservation title. Um, you know, we really think the way we subsidize agriculture through the commodity title and now, unfortunately through crop insurance is really vitally important. There's not very many, environmental organizations that focus on subsidies and crop insurance you know they're mostly focused on the conservation title Mm -hmm. but nsac inferred it you know we share that view exactly right so he's vitally interested nsac is vitally interested in the commodity program you know So so we're vitally interested in payment limits and actively engaged and You know, F.E.R.D. is uh, very concerned about what's happening to crop insurance. So um, on the really big fights, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder. Um, You know, more shoulder to shoulder with with the Sustainable Ag Coalition than we are oddly with, sometimes with other conservation and environmental groups. You know, we think they're. Agenda is a little too narrow, right? A little too parochial, right? And um, and not really targeted at the kind of more fundamental reform, right? And you know, and uh, just the stunning possibility, potential, from an environmental conservation point of view, if we could if we could really move the needle towards more sustainable farming systems on the landscape.
0: I think NSAC, as that has been in my judgment, one of the contributions of NSAC in, in the recent years, EWG, is convincing or strengthening, I guess you'd say, groups like uh, National Wildlife Federation's uh-huh. commitment to conservation and sustainable agriculture and bringing that in, increasingly understanding that. And I think the water quality issues in particular yes. have driven that understanding
1: yeah and it's really interesting to see the science now actually you know coming behind that and reinforcing it because um, what what scientists are have learned and are telling us is in this really intensively farmed landscape like the corn belt um, there's only so much you can do by kind of tweaking the corn soybean rotation, right? I mean, you know, more state-of-the-art nutrient management is a good thing. You know, um, soil conservation is is a good thing. But, uh, you know, they're really telling us that the, the fundamental problem is, you know, like here in Iowa, or I'm not in Iowa, I'm in Minnesota, my home state. Hope my mom never sees this video, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the um, You know, in a state like Iowa, where 95% of your landscape is in one or two plants that are only green and growing for three to four months out of the year, you can't solve these more fundamental natural resource, environmental sustainability issues without diversifying that landscape. And, you know, it's just been really interesting to watch, you know, that some of the top scientists in the country are telling everybody that now right right? and you see it coming on in the you know the cover crop movement and you know the incredible research that people like matt liebman are doing at iowa state about the just the the impact of more a little longer rotation Mm -hmm. the prairie Mm -hmm. strips work you know the greenlands blue waters work here in minnesota so i think I think that we still got a long way to go to to have the larger environmental community get that, right? That it's not just about how much fertilizer you're applying, exactly. but it's these bigger questions about the farming system and the agricultural landscape. Um, but I think it's, you know, it really helps to have EWG and NSAC and on the same
0: page there. And yeah. I think the teachings of, I think of, again of Wes Jackson, who's been yeah. so important, really I think it's really thinking, starting to take hold that you just have to look at the lessons that we've learned from ecological studies to see yes. that that has to really be underpinning. You really do as much as possible, as, as Wes says, mimic natural systems in order to have successful agriculture ultimately in the long term and that's really what's kind of underneath it yeah and i
1: that's where um you know despite the track record of not you know not being able to conquer the farm bill yet but i think you know my optimism for the future is that i think i think the real gains um have been what sustainable farmers are doing themselves, right? Just sprinkled out across the landscape are, are these men and women that are coming up with these just exciting, innovative ways of farming. It's just amazing. And uh, I think with low commodity prices, with herbicide resistant weeds and insecticide resistant, Insects, Um, you know, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but I think, I think, those um, sustainable farmers, the the folks that are doing longer rotations, the folks that are mimicking mimicking ecology, that are looking at agro ecological approaches as their way of managing their operation. You know, I th- I think they're going to do well. Mm-hmm. And I think they may do better than the folks that try to stay trapped in this treadmill of corn and soy, which is getting more and more expensive, mm-hmm. harder and harder to do, more and more stressful. Right. It's, um, you know, I mean, one of the farmers I talked to, for advice, he's got 17 landlords that he has to deal with every single year to to keep his operation together. Wow. I, I ran into a farmer at a conference who actually was complaining, yelling at me about conservation compliance and mm-hmm. EWG, but it turns out after we talked for a while, he has 31 landlords. My
0: goodness.
1: Right? Wow. So it's... So I so I think I think this notion of the more diversified farming systems is got legs.
0: Good. And I think I'd like to conclude this with a little bit more. Uh, You've just kind of gotten into it. That all points to I think what what's your thinking on what we need to do, say, with the next farm bill or the next policy initiatives to, you know, push that transition more towards ecological approaches and to uh, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that, thinking forward on what you think some priorities should be for NSAC and the policy agenda yeah. broadly.
1: So, uh, let me just start with what um, what I think we're missing, and, and what we're really missing is there's not enough grassroots pressure on legislators or agency policymakers at the state level or the federal level. And um, so we find ourselves visiting legislative offices, you know, either at state legislatures or at the federal legislature and trying to convince their staffs or the member, him or herself, that they really should be interested in this, Mm -hmm. right? Which is not really the place you wanna be right? You want them hearing from their constituents that there's problems here or there's opportunities here and you want them, you know, the best of all possible worlds is they're reaching out to you Mm -hmm. and saying, look, you know, we're hearing all this. What can we do? What can the Farm Bill do for us? What can you know, what can some legislation at the Minnesota legislature do like the buffer law that, you know, was a huge victory here. Um, so, so part of what we need to do as a community is we need to figure out how to, how to build that pressure, right? How, how do we get that, uh, you know, moving in ways that uh, legislators are hearing from people other than us? Right, so NSAC is well-suited for that, you know, with their grassroots network. EWG is not, yet, but we're really beginning to build a, quite an impressive social media capability, which, you know, we're, in, in fact, we're having a ag strategy retreat next week in the Ames office with all our government affairs people and the ag team and our, development people and our technology people to to really sort of reset what we're thinking in terms of so from a political or what's going to give us the leverage to make the changes we think need to be made i think i think we need to really focus on doing that mm-hmm. you know part of our contribution i think is is going to be using our our growing capacity in remote sensing and to really start telling true stories about what's happening on the landscape. And I think there are, I think the environmental natural resource problems are beginning to cross thresholds where it's harder for people to ignore them. Right? Like just think of Toledo, you know, loses its drinking water for four days, I think, because of an algal bloom driven largely by runoff from an agricultural watershed, right? Mm -hmm. Six months later, Ohio passes a law prohibiting manure application on saturated or snow-covered ground, right? right? The, you know, the severe problems in southern Minnesota with polluted runoff from ag operations that, you know, leads to a a governor proposing a buffer law that actually gets passed. And, you know, we think we contributed to that with our Broken Stream Banks report. That was our first real rollout of our remote sensing capacity. And then on the... uh, So I think part of what we need to do is heighten the awareness that things are not going well. You know, beach closings in Iowa, the Des Moines Water Works lawsuit. Um, but then on the other, simultaneously with that, we have to really get people excited about the alternative, right? And partly that's where groups like NSAC, Practical Farmers of Iowa, Land Stewardship Project, you know, the, where where you can show that it doesn't have to be this way and people can make a good living and you know all these other benefits for rural communities and flow from this you know we got to do both Mm -hmm. right you can't just depress people Mm -hmm. (laughs) about what's going wrong they have there has to be a recognition that things are not going well but there also has to be excitement about the solutions and i think if we can somehow consistently and strategically and smartly do that we'll start to build this larger you know people will start hearing
0: about it and then that can be the base for policy changes yeah and
1: then we can start to think about how do we you know how do we change the conservation title and how do we change you know make another run at the commodity, commodity title, and particularly on crop insurance now, mm-hmm. to um, you know, to try yet again, mm-hmm. to try to get our farm bill lined up with what, what, you know, what the public needs from a farm bill, not what this fairly narrow sector of agriculture thinks they deserve from
0: a farm bill. Right.
1: That's what's got to change.
0: And the research policy that can drive it, and that landscape, right. and other areas.
1: So. Yeah, and you know, we're also thinking more about um, you know initiatives in key states. Do do we want to be so totally dependent on federal policy? Mm-hmm. But are there, you know, like Minnesota, mm-hmm. are there? Where are there opportunities at the state level to? to make some progress and to demonstrate that this this can be done Mm -hmm. right and to build confidence that this can be done Um, so i think that's the bigger picture and then we can you know we can talk about what's the specific agenda which you know i have my ideas about how i if i could wave a magic wand and Mm -hmm. reinvent equip and CSP and the conservation title as a whole what you know how I would do that or certainly we have our own ideas about what we should do with crop insurance which we could talk about but you know until we change that dynamic of you know us looking for champions in congress in the most you know in the right wing side of congress who we can appeal to from a you know, a a budget hawk perspective about how expensive crop insurance is. Right. Mm -hmm. So so we're kind of searching for allies or champions instead of champions coming to us because there's, you know, they're hearing about this and we don't. I mean, we've made strides, obviously, if you look at Ferd's memo, we've made strides But I don't think we're going to transform ag policy at state or federal level without changing that dynamic. And I think there's possibilities now with there's I mean, just look at the press coverage about agricultural issues, Mm -hmm. both positive and negative. It's just it's changing. And social media is remarkable for what what you can communicate and the conversation you can
0: have there. Excellent. Well, I think we've really hit almost all the points I wanted to. Cool. Hit. I really enjoyed this interview and I really want to thank you for, for your, not only your comments today, but for your career and all yeah, you've thank you. to uh, help bring these things about and what an ally you've been for, for NSAC and for moving policy
1: forward. Well, they've been a great ally. It's been a, It's been fun, actually. And a great partnership.
0: This has
2: been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron
1: Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.